Well, if you would, take your Bibles and open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll say more about this in just a moment. Some of you know this. If you come to First Baptist Powell on a regular basis, we are taking a brief hiatus from our exposition in the book of Acts. We're going to get back to Acts here in a few weeks, and we're walking through a series on becoming a healthy church member, and so this is another installment in that series. Ephesians chapter 2, and we are going to read together verses 11 through 22. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, and we'll read through the remainder of the chapter, which is 22 verses total, so verses 11 through 22. And when you get there, because this is the Word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's Day, would you please stand to hear from the God who still speaks in His Word. Again, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul the Apostle writes as he is carried along by the Spirit of God these words. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, That you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers. And aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever, church family. You may be seated. When I am out in public, from time to time I'm allowed to go out in public, release myself from the shackles of privacy and isolation. One of the activities I enjoy is reading t-shirts. You ever do this? I I really think that the t-shirt today has replaced the bumper sticker. I used to enjoy reading bumper stickers. Uh, They're not quite as common as they once were. You do find them from time to time, and then when you do find them, there are 46 on the back of someone's car. And you can only hope uh, for a moment at a red light to read through the bumper stickers. But t-shirts really do communicate. Now, for many of you, t-shirts are just casual, neutral, and comfortable ways of dressing from time to time. But, But for others of us, they are an avenue for communicating identity, value, 
and priorities. Actually, there's someone here. I won't embarrass this brother. There's someone here this morning uh, that I had the privilege of meeting because I had a particular T-shirt on. And the T-shirt was purchased by one of our members. And uh, it won't surprise you if you come to this church on a regular basis. If you're visiting, this exposes who I am. It had a picture, as it were, of Polycarp of Smyrna on the T-shirt. An early church father, second century, who gave up his life for the faith. Um, Hallelujah. And so I'm wearing that T-shirt. So there's a brother here right now. Actually, I I met because of a T-shirt I was wearing communicated. So he perhaps does the same thing I do. So I read these t-shirts when I'm out and about in public. And a few months ago, and you doubtless have seen this t-shirt, a few months ago I noticed a young couple when I was out and about and, and the woman was wearing a particular t-shirt. I don't remember if the man was because I just caught him as they were walking by. I just caught a glimpse of them. But the woman's t-shirt read these words, I love my husband. And I thought, that's tremendous. And I almost did, you know, the embarrassing thing to my wife and my children and stopped and thanked her for wearing this t-shirt. I didn't do that. But I do. I often will try to have conversation with people on, the, on account of their t-shirt. And uh, I thought to myself as I reflected, I walked away, it was quick, walked away and just reflected on the message that was on this woman's t-shirt I love my husband. And I thought, this woman is not simply married to her husband. Which is, by the way, a good thing. It's difficult to be anything else than married to your husband, if you have a husband, right? But this woman, don't miss this, to some degree, prizes her marriage. Boasts about her marriage. Highly esteemed and values publicly her marriage and her husband. Over the previous few weeks, and we're going to come full circle to that, hang on to it for just a second. Over the previous few weeks, we have identified and meditated on four characteristics of a healthy church member. Four characteristics. First, we observe that a healthy church member is present within the church. Pastor Tim preached that sermon through which he exhorted us to be present in the church, to gather when the church gathers. It's it's in part what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, to be a part of the assembly. You're exercising that facet even this morning through your presence. Second, we observe that a healthy church member prays for the church. Pastor Hunter preached a sermon through which he exhorted us to be people of prayer, to pray as we breathe air, and to pray in particular for our church family. Third, we learn that a healthy church member serves the church. Pastor Adam Holland exhorted us to engage in serving the body of Christ and exercising various spiritual gifts granted by the presence of the Holy Spirit for the edification and growth of the church. So a healthy church member serves the church. Fourth, last Lord's Day, I had the joy of talking to you about how a healthy church member gives to the church. There are perhaps a number of ways that church members ought to be giving to the church, not the least of which is out of their finances as a stewardship and as stewards of the manifold blessings of God. Well, this morning, we are going to identify a fifth characteristic of what it means to be a healthy church member. And here it is. And this is where we're going to come full circle back to that initial story. The woman wearing the shirt that said, I love my husband, unashamedly, unabashedly. So fifth this morning, a healthy church member prizes membership in a local church. A healthy church member isn't simply a member in a local church. A healthy church member prizes his or her membership in the local church. And we're going to unpack this together in a couple of stages by looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So if you're taking notes, you can jot down these two stages. And just 
a word of warning, we will not be able to deal with every detail in the text. There's so much. This, this previous week I was thinking about this, and this is the nature, I suppose, of a topical or thematic series. We select texts oftentimes. We walk through those texts, and so there is an expositional element to topical series, or at least there should be. Uh, however, they don't afford us the opportunity to really ferret out everything that's in the text. So we're not going to deal with everything in this text. We're going to deal with the high points. But here are the two high points I want you to jot down if you're taking notes. First, we are going to identify and talk about our past. Our past as believers in Jesus Christ. Paul begins with our past. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 is all about our past. And then even, actually, you could go back to earlier in the chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, our past. We may do that a little bit. Secondly, this morning, in addition to our past, we are going to highlight and discuss our present. Our present. And this is verses 13 through 22, and this is where we're going to skip so much. Paul will utilize so many images for the glory of of Christ as manifested in the body of Christ, in the church, in the assembly. And we're not going to be able to talk about all of those details. I'm going to do my best to select as we move along and we'll get you out of here no later than 3.30 this afternoon, okay? (laughs) All right, our past and our present. Young worshipers. So as you know, know, we um, we have opportunity for some of our young worshipers to exit during this time as they did a moment ago. Um, you are welcome as families to keep your young worshipers with you throughout the service. We also celebrate that. But for our younger worshipers who are in the room with us, our children, I want you to look for a couple of things, okay? And they're going to be related to our main points, but they're not the same as our main points. So a couple of things I want our younger worshipers looking for in the text. Remember parents, grandparents, Guardians, we want to teach our young worshipers to be in the word of God. They ought to expect to have their Bibles open when they go to church. Every time. I won't chase that far. First thing, younger worshipers, I want you to look for. First, how does Paul describe us before we came to trust Jesus? How does Paul describe us before we came to trust Jesus? Now, this is related to that first big point, our past. I just want you to be able to look at one or two of the ways. There are a few right answers to this, okay? I'll give you a hint. You can look at verse 12, younger worshiper, for this answer, okay? How does Paul describe us before we came to know, trust, and treasure Jesus? Second, second thing I want you looking for is how did God rescue us? How did God rescue us? You can look here in verse 16. There are a couple of places where he tells us this. Verse 16 is one of them. Okay? So how does Paul describe us before we came to trust Jesus? And then how did God actually rescue us out of this problem? I want you to be able to answer those two questions for your parents later. Parents, please, grandparents, guardians, feel free to whisper, talk, to your younger worshiper throughout the sermon. Questions are welcomed, and uh, you won't be frowned upon, okay? I'm going to assume you're talking about the sermon, if you're talking. So feel free. Just please talk about the sermon throughout the message, all right? Okay, let's begin by looking together at our first primary point, our past. Look down with me, if you would, at the text. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let's read that again. Therefore, Paul says, remember... That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, immediately, you ought to see this. Paul is not fundamentally concerned with teaching new concepts in this text. That's not what he's doing. His concern, fundamentally, is to remind us of already existing and espoused concepts in the body of Christ. After all, notice that he says, therefore, what? Remember. 
Therefore, remember. And, and by the way, this is common throughout the New Testament. It's quite common for the New Testament author to exhort God's people in this way. Remember. I'm not teaching you anything new. I'm just going to remind you of what you already know. In fact, as Samuel Johnson, the great 18th century poet and author, once um, is, is uh, described as saying, man needs to be reminded more often than he needs to be instructed. It's true, isn't it? If you're a parent, you know it's true. But it's not just our children that need these reminders. I find myself from time to time thinking, why, well, I'm repeating myself. I'm a broken record. I've said this 14,763 <laughs> times. And then I remember, my children are just like their father. Man needs to be reminded more often than he needs to be instructed. And so Paul is reminding us, and the people to whom Paul writes here, uh, this will help us as we come full circle about membership. And this will be a bit later in the sermon. We're going to get there. You'll hopefully see all of this connecting. The people to whom Paul wrote this were Gentile believers in Jesus Christ. Now, now you, if you take notes, mark that down. These are Gentile Christians. In other words, they were non-Jews, non-Jewish people, primarily. By the way, this is not to suggest that there were no Jewish Christians in, in and around the church of Ephesus. There doubtless were. By the way, Paul was a what? A Jew. Paul was a Jew, a believing Jew. But what he does show us in this text, and he shows us this elsewhere, that more fundamental to the identity of the follower of Jesus Christ is not Gentile or Jew, it's Christian. He'll say one new man. Christ is breaking down, has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh by means of his death. We're going to get to some of that. So Paul is going to show us that whereas, whereas many in his day, and of course even the first century Jewish people, and even some of the Christians, whereas they often divided humanity into two categories, Gentile, non-Jew, and Jewish people, or Israelite, more broadly. Paul says, no, no, more fundamentally, it's, it's Christian and non-Christian. It's believer in Christ and unbeliever as as he unpacks even throughout this text. But it was, it was the Jewish people, and, and Paul says it here very clearly. It was the Jewish people that God graciously made covenants with and to bless them, and through them to bless all the people of the earth. So for example, Israel, um, and by the way, you know, technically the Jewish people is a way of referring to a particular group of Israelites, but by the time of the New Testament, Jewish people becomes a broad category for all of Israel. So I'm going to use the two interchangeably, Jewish people, Israel. Israel, or the Jewish people, descended from Abram, who would eventually be called Abraham, and with whom God made a covenant. Remember this, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, that through Abram and through his offspring, God would bless all the families of the earth. Well, who descended from Abraham? The Jewish people, the Israelites, through Isaac, and so forth. And then as a result, through Jacob, also known as what? Israel, which is why they're known as the Israelites, you see? Moreover, Israel benefited immediately from God meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai and giving his law. God gave his law on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. He granted his law to Moses and through Moses to whom? The people of Israel, the Jewish people. This is an immense blessing that they received. If you're a Gentile this morning, that is, if you're a non-Jewish person, as I am, I'm a Gentile, um, then, then you were not a part of this, as it were, as a heritage, eth ethnically. There's more to this. Some of you in the room, perhaps, have, have Jewish heritage, and so you're described in the text as those who were near. The Gentiles are described as those who were far. But the only way to be in Right? Neither near nor far, but to be in is through faith in Jesus Christ, Amen. as Paul gets at in the text. Moreover, Israel, Israel, the Jewish people, benefited from the leadership of King David, 
with whom God made a covenant to establish his kingdom forever through one of David's descendants in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The people of Israel enjoyed unique privileges. Paul believes this. He states it very clearly here and elsewhere. The people of Israel enjoyed unique privileges that were not enjoyed by the rest of the world. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so Paul recognizes that there is this unique privilege of being an Israelite, of being a Jewish person, including, included rather among these unique privileges was the ordinance of circumcision. And this is what Paul focuses on in our text. That was one of the unique privileges of being an Israelite. Circumcision, we're not going to get any details here. Parents, you can decide what to do with that. Circumcision was a sign, however, an ordinance that marked the Israelites off from the rest of the world. It was the identity marker. And so, as a result, the Jewish people actually were oftentimes described as the circumcised. And the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were described as the uncircumcised. Now we're getting to our text, you see. This is the background for what Paul is doing here. Now he tells us in the text, of course, that the kind of circumcision that some boast about is simply circumcision in the flesh accomplished by human hands. Now what is he saying? He's saying that it profits nothing unless it's met with faith in Christ. What Paul goes on to say, of course, is that circumcision was to point to a greater reality in Christ, the one who was circumcised in our place, cut off from the blessing of God for us so that we might receive life by means of his death. So circumcision pointed to a greater reality, but you've got to get this, these divisions, as it were, in the minds of these first century people, especially Jewish people. There were the circumcised people, God's people, God's chosen privileged people, and then those uncircumcised Gentiles. And Paul is writing predominantly to the uncircumcised Gentiles who now came to believe in Jesus Christ and who, according to Paul, actually were in part the true circumcision because they had trusted in the one to whom circumcision pointed, you see. This is massive. Now, this is, we're going to come full circle here about church membership. You're thinking, what does that have to do with being a healthy church member? And we'll come full circle, at least I hope. We may take a ways to get there. Now, Paul resumes his thought in verse 12. Again, describing Gentile believers, okay? Just so you have the background now. Now he's describing Gentile believers at that time. Namely, the time before you came to know Christ, you were separated. This is how he describes Gentile believers before coming to know the Lord. You were separated. You were alienated. You were hopeless. And you were godless in the world. Now he could use some of these descriptions for Israelites as well outside of Christ, outside of faith in Christ. But here he's focused specifically on Gentiles. And Paul began the chapter, by the way, he began the chapter with a description of our past. So you're looking at the text, Ephesians chapter 2. Just glance back at verses 1 through 3, and we'll wrap up our discussion about our past here. Verses 1 through 3, and this, I think, will help bring this full circle to help you see that really he's not just describing Gentiles. He's describing everyone apart from God's grace. So Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, notice, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, now don't miss this, 
children of wrath, like whom? The rest of mankind. There it is. At the end of the day for Paul, he knows there are two groups of people, all sinners, all apart from Christ, dead in trespasses and sins, all morally depraved, all incapable spiritually, all destined for God's wrath apart from the grace of God in Christ. But there are two categories of people, those who have been rescued on account of God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and there are those who have not. So there's no longer this fundamental distinction between Jew and Gentile. Now the distinction is those who have been rescued and those who have not in Christ. And that's where Paul, of course, goes there in verse 3 and following. He understood that the Jew and the Gentile found him or herself in the same predicament. Without Christ, they were separated from God. Ethnicity could not rescue the Jew and the Gentile. Well, goodness. They were strangers to the citizenship of Israel and aliens to the covenant separated from Christ. So everybody exists apart from God's grace. Everybody exists in a state of moral depravity, helplessness, spiritual death, and separation from God. On account of Genesis 3, in our rebellion, in Adam and Eve, there is no exception among mere mortals. In summary, so that's our past. Encouraging? You feel uplifted yet? We've talked about this from time to time, right? We really can't understand the impact of the good news of the gospel unless we first understand the extent of our own depravity and our need to be rescued. We really can't boast in our salvation on account of God's grace before we come to realize the seriousness of our sin. So in summary, this was our past. We were separated from God and, now don't miss this, because remember we talked about these Gentiles. We were separated from God and we were separated from his people. Now both of those facets are going to prove important as we talk about church membership. Our past is characterized by separation from God and separation from God's people. Not only do we find a description of our past in the text, we find a description of our present. Notice verse 13 with me, if you would. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, I want you to notice throughout this text, there is this language that communicates location. If you like grammar, these descriptions are called locative descriptions. Locative. It's actually a case in some languages. These are locative descriptions. Look at the text with me. In Christ Jesus, that's, that's a statement about location. In Christ. Or those who were once far off. A description communicating location, distance. Having been brought near is a description of location, nearness. So picture this. We were distant from God, and we were distant from God's people. But Christ is the location for reconciliation. He's the place at which, in which, through which we are restored to God and to God's people. So in Christ, God meets favorably with sinners on account 
of the obedience of Christ and on account of Christ's death and resurrection for us. And notice, I've just said it, but notice the avenue through which we are reconciled to God in verse 13. Younger worshipers, this is a part of what I said a moment ago, so pay close attention here. In verse 13, and you could look at verse 16 as well, it's by the blood of Christ. That's the avenue. By the blood of Christ. Or, as Paul writes in verse 16, we are reconciled through the cross. It's the cross that serves as the avenue through which sinners are reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. Now, What I want to do is I want to spend a few moments unpacking those two consequences of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay? I want to spend a couple of moments talking about, on the one hand, being reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Christ. On the other hand, I want to talk about being reconciled to one another through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because I'm going to submit to you that we don't often talk about this consequence as much as we talk about this consequence. And so we're going to do that here for a few moments. So through the incarnation, through God the Son becoming human, Through his life, through his death on the cross, through his burial, through his resurrection, through his appearances, through his ascension back into heaven, and through his future return, we are reconciled to God and to one another. First, let's talk about our restored relationship with God. This is found throughout the text. It's found throughout Scripture. For example, verse 16. I know we're jumping around a bit Verse 16, Paul asserts that through the cross, we are reconciled to God. Also notice verse 18, where we read these words, for through him, that is through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to whom? To the Father. Moreover, through the work of the incarnate Son of God, we become a dwelling place for God in verse 22. That's restoration, right? So Paul uses a number of images here. He uses the image of a household, God's household. He uses the image of God's temple, God's dwelling place. He even uses the image of just a broad structure. But the point here remains the same. Through Christ, sinners are brought into a restored relationship with God. To such a degree that the Spirit of God actually comes and lives among and within us. As God's people, that's restoration. We don't simply dwell alongside of God, as it were. God dwells in us. And we find that here in the text, verse 22. Paul speaks about it elsewhere, Galatians 4. It's through that spirit that we call God Abba Father. He sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, Romans 8. So God dwells in us and among us and through us. So through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's people are restored to a right relationship with God. Secondly, however, and this is where we're getting closer. I know we're just inching toward church membership. We're getting closer to church membership now. Second, through the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ, Christ restores our relationship with one another. Jew and Gentile, but all the other difference in the world as well through faith in Christ. And this is the primary point of our text. Took us a long time to get the primary point, I know. You needed a little background, I think. Perhaps it was helpful. Verses 11 through 22 focus on this restored relationship. Our reconciliation with God is simultaneously a reconciliation with God's people. So notice with me verses 14, 15, and 16. And you'll see this. You'll see it throughout the text. For he, that is Christ, is our peace, who has made us, notice, both one. Jew and Gentile. He's restored a relationship between Jewish people and Gentile people. 
and he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, the dividing wall that separated Jews and Gentiles. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, he, he made them inoperative. He nullified them. The things that marked out Israel from the nations are fulfilled in Jesus so that he could make one new man, Jew and Gentile, believers in Jesus Christ. That he might create in himself, notice, one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now, don't miss this. Of course, he is talking about peace with God. But in the text, explicitly, he's talking about peace with one another. Verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in One body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Hostility, that is, between God and sinners, but also hostility between one sinner and another sinner. And this truth, by the way, this beautiful truth that Not only are we restored to a right relationship with God through Christ, but we're restored to a right relationship with one another through Christ. This truth climaxes in verse 19. Look at the text, verse 19, where Paul declares, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are what? Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The work of Christ has not merely effected a restored vertical relationship with God. It has. Glory to God it has. And as evangelical Christians, we talk a lot about that, right? Your sins have separated you from God. And through the work of Christ received by faith, you can be restored to a right relationship with God. That's wonderful news. But we don't talk enough about how that restoration enacts another restoration. That by embracing God as our Father, we are embracing one another as brothers and sisters. You see. This is why, by the way, I mentioned Polycarp earlier, a bit later. Cyprian of Carthage, third century, He wrote a work called On the Unity of the Church, De Unitate. And he made a controversial claim there for many. I think you'll understand it, maybe. He said this, He who has not the church as his mother cannot have God as his father. That's a bit stronger, I think, than we often speak as evangelical Christians. But I'm not convinced that we shouldn't meet Cyprian there. Cyprian understood that a restored relationship with God simultaneously meant a restored relationship with the church, with other repenting sinners saved by God's grace. Jews Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, barbarians, slaves, free, all the above, Americans, and so many others. That's the gospel. That through the work of Christ, we are restored to a right relationship with God and a right relationship with one another. So, if you're here this morning, and you've not been the recipient of experiencing that restoration that was purchased on the cross by means of Christ's death, that was confirmed and secured by means of the empty tomb and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ that is preached by the church for now 2,000 years and will be preached until Jesus Christ returns to make all things new. If you've not yet benefited from this restoration, I would implore you, plead with you, not to leave this place without recognizing, one, 
You are, apart from the grace of God in Christ, just like the rest of us, a sinner against a holy God, separated from God and separated from God's people. But the good news is Jesus Christ offers restoration to anyone and everyone who repents and believes in Christ. So if you want to talk more about this, you have questions about it, Maybe you have protests. That's okay. I love hearing protests. I am Protestant after all. And American, it just so happens. And so I love to interact on those levels that other brothers and sisters here do as well. We understand all of that. If that's where you are, you want to talk about that, perhaps you want to embrace Jesus Christ for the very first time as the treasure of your life and come to know what it means to live a life of restoration with God and restoration with God's people. Stick around after the service, would you? And as you leave one of these doors, take a left. I mentioned earlier in the welcome, there's a room out there before you leave this building on the right-hand side called Crossroads. Go into that room and have a conversation with one of our elders in there who would love to talk with you and pray with you and come alongside of you and perhaps even you alongside of him and us as we learn to lead lives that demonstrate our restoration with God and our restoration with one another. Now, I knew this was going to happen. What does all of this have to do with church membership? Now, I think you can connect the dots, but I'm going to help connect them for you, okay? What what does all of this have to do with church membership? Here it is. Local church membership is a visible demonstration of this reality. Local church membership is a visible demonstration of our restoration through the work of Christ to God and our restoration through the work of Christ to God's people. For this reason, the gospel and the restoration purchased for us through Christ, that's why we join a local church. Even more so, that's why We prize our membership. We prize our membership because we prize the gospel visibly demonstrated through our membership. Mark Dever has written these words, the church is the gospel made visible. And it's so true. The church is the gospel made visible. Visible. So my membership in this local church, First Baptist Church in Powell, by the way, so many other local churches. So it's not just this church. It's a local church. That's a local expression of the universal body of Christ. But my membership here at this local church illustrates that although I was a stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope, And without God in the world, now in Christ Jesus, I have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's why my membership matters to me so much. It's not a name on a page. It's not that I have my name listed in realm, which is kind of the database that we use to keep up with everyone. No, no. No, my membership matters to me in the local church because the gospel is my supreme treasure. Amen. And it's through the gospel that I have the privilege of joining a local church where that gospel becomes visible to me and to a watching world. This is why churches, by the way, are collections of different people. Not just Jews and Gentiles, right? People with different backgrounds or different hobbies. You ever notice that? Just talk to people in the church. Ask them about their past. Ask them about what they do for a living. Ask them about their raising and you'll find out, wow, there's no cookie cutter picture of what it means to be a member of this church in these ways anyway. Different interests, different vocations, different ethnicities, Many other demonstrations of diversity all united together through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the church. And by the way, 
By the way, this is one of the reasons why we must guard against anything else encroaching on our unity in Christ. This is why it's important for us to be consciously aware that our tendency is to import and smuggle other instruments for our unity. Instruments that are beyond the gospel. No, no. What binds us together is the gospel. That's what binds us together. And we'll have differences and disagreements at various times and in various ways, but may it be that we agree upon the death of Christ at Golgotha and the empty tomb on the third day that purchased our redemption. Conversely, when we do not prize church membership, I would submit to you, and I can get personal here actually, when I have not prized church membership, I have failed to prize my status as a son of God. I have failed to see the connection between my restoration with God through Christ and my restoration with God's people through Christ. So, what is your general posture in relationship to your church? Think about this with me for just a moment as we wrap up. This is all the part of the same conclusion I mentioned a moment ago. Just one time we're concluding today, not multiple times. Do you spend more time prizing your status as a member of God's household or do you spend more time complaining about the challenges of being a sibling who has to share a house with other siblings? Now, why do I say that? Because I spend time complaining as a sibling. But the gospel corrects, the gospel exhorts, and the gospel transforms us into people who prize our membership because we prize the gospel that has eventuated our membership. By the way, being in a family, right? Being in a family brings with it challenges. Does it not? I mean, I can't tell you how many times a conversation happens in our household, and the question is, why do I have to do that? And the answer is very simple, because you're a member of the family. You're a member of the family. You received this by birth. (laughs) But for others, you received this by adoption. You inherited this. So it is with the body of Christ. Why do we think the spiritual family of God ought to be any different? Painless, right? Everybody only, always agreeing on everything. No, no, God loves us far too much for that. I am convinced. I am convinced that some of the diversity, this is a whole nother sermon needs to be nuanced. We're not talking about a compromise concerning the truth of the gospel. That's not what we're talking about. But some of the diversity that's present in the church is a gift from our gracious Father to teach us how to love one another. It is so incredibly easy for me to love you when you are just like me. I'm just being honest up here right now, okay? Why? Because I get to look in the mirror and one of my greatest weaknesses is a love for self. But when you look different than I do, or you disagree with me, now it's more challenging to love you. But what a stewardship it is. What a stewardship it is when, as siblings, we have to share the same room in the same home. Right? We don't have the freedom to say, get out of my room. No, no. No, you don't have a room. You're an heir of a home as the rest of God's people, you see. This is what it means to be God's household. 
You're a member of a family. You spend time picking up after others. Again, another conversation I have from time to time. This is all in my own heart. Please understand. Every bit, every complaint that I mentioned today, I know well because it surfaces from within me. But oftentimes you'll hear this conversation. I didn't didn't leave that there. I understand. But you are what? You're a member of the family. (laughs) Right? And you know this as parents. Some of you who are parents or grandparents, you know this. In fact, some of you who are singles, you understand this too, by the way. You have friends over. And those friends will leave something out. And what do you do? I hope what you don't do. I hope you don't go to them every time and say, hey, I'm still waiting. A week ago, you left this cup (laughs) on my table, and I'm waiting for you to come back here and pick up the cup. No, you pick it up for them because you're a member of a household, and the house is dirty. I need to wrap up. To shift metaphors, when we consider this eternal privilege, the gospel, and our restoration through the work of Christ to God, and our restoration through the work of Christ to one another and the church, when we consider the glories of this gospel to shift metaphors, we respond with the words of the psalmist in Psalm 84, verse 10. Many of you know this. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. When our children were younger, my heart would sing when they made a particular comment I know they didn't always feel this way. None of us do. But when they did feel this way, they would share it, and it blessed my socks off. I'm talking socks lying on the ground as a result (laughs) of the comment. They would say this, Mom and Dad, I am so thankful to be in this family. When we prize our membership in the local church, You know what we're saying to our Father in heaven? Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful to be in your family. May it be true of us by God's grace. Let's pray. Our Father, I didn't scratch the surface on these glorious realities. Doubtless, I... I spoke inadequately and imperfectly, but you are pleased to use inadequate and imperfect people for your glory. So be pleased to do that even today among us. Remind us, Father, this morning and this week of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ through which we've been restored to a right relationship with you and through which we've been restored to a right relationship with one another. And grant us the joy of living in light of this restoration as your people right here at First Baptist Church in Powell, Tennessee. We pray this for your glory and for the glory of your Son by the presence of your Spirit together. Amen.